0: Fantastic. Um, that line always gets me. All the sin that promised life had led me to the grave. Uh, oh, what a beautiful picture that is. That's like Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. We're not seeing the bumper video anymore, but that's that's it. All these promises that Solomon's experienced, everything in his life. I mean, it's, it's Havel, it's vanity. It's it doesn't matter. It's about Christ. Um, welcome here today. Kids, you're, you're in service with us today. That's fantastic. Um, I'm going to give an opportunity. Anyone who wants to move forward, let's fill the front. Don't, don't feel shy if you want to come up into the splash zone, as some call it. Um, I won't be distracted by kids either. That's fine. Come on up. So good morning. Welcome. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes today. So in your Bibles, we have Psalms, Proverbs. Ecclesiastes. That's where we are. Chapter 5, verses 8 through 20, as we work our way through this book of Ecclesiastes. And again, here we're going to see that Quohelet, our author, is going to use another literary device in here. So a month ago, kids, when you were with us, we learned about a different literary device. It's called a merismus. You don't have to remember that. Uh, Today, we're looking at what's called a chiasm. So it's another literary device that Kohelet's using to just bring poetry into life, into what he sees. A chiasm is a series of points that leads up to a main point. So it it works its way, like one, two, three steps up. You have our main point. That's what we're going to see in verses 18, 19, and 20. That's going to be our main point. We're going to have three steps leading up, and then next week when Paul is up here, we're going to come down off that chiasm as Kohelet works his way back off that. So it's a uh, kind of a pillar of of points to make a bigger point. Two things we also want to kind of focus on here for kids and, and adults alike to learn is that we have, when we look at Scripture, there's... there's two very basic ways to look at things. Is this descriptive? Are we reading about what is being shown to us in terms of what's actually happening? Or is this prescriptive in terms of telling us how things ought to be? So we're going to see both of that in our text here today. Um, Kids, if, if someone didn't get a handout, feel free to put your hand up. Uh, Dean in the back will bring you a handout so you guys can follow along. Looks like we just missed Logan in the front row. There's a pen in my, in my uh, Bible case too if you want a pen. If any of you guys don't have a Bible, there also should be one in front of you in the pew. Feel free to open that up. It's, just, it's important that we have God's Word in front of us so that we can see these things, we can follow along, we can read. And, and then uh, if you need a Bible, take it. That's, that's our gift to you as a church. We want to have God's word in your hands. Uh, and if there's any of you who are electronic today, this, this might be your day to shine, because I'm going to maybe jump between two, three different... Uh, just going to point out some nuances between, say, the NIV, the ESV, and different translations here. So when I was working through this text, uh, just reflecting on, on kind of myself... Uh, how, how my heart is. It, it reminded me of when I was uh, a teenager in those like 16, 17, 18 years old as I'm, as I'm ending high school and thinking about what does a career look like? What, what do I want to do with my life? And it was very clear in my memory. I remember it very vividly. There was two paths I was going on. That's it. There was only two. I was playing competitive hockey and it was... Path one was the NHL. I was, going, I was going straight to the big show. I was gonna have a life full of uh, everything it has to offer. Money, riches, uh, it was gonna be great. Uh, it didn't take me long to realize that 5'8 Kyle is a, uh, a tiny little guy compared to the way goaltending was going. So they're looking into 6'3", 6'5", 6'8 goalies. They're stretching out all over the net. And uh, gone are the days of like Artis Erbe and some of those smaller goalies who could move. Obviously, life didn't go out that route. The second way I saw life going, and, and, and I didn't know the Lord at this time. This is, this is me and life under the sun, S-U-N, apart from God. Was I was going to be a big shot CEO. I was going to go down the business route. By age 24, I had this number in my head for some reason. I think that was finish high school finish university, and give it like two years of climbing the business ladder. I was going to be a CEO. I was going to have the sports car, the riches, the wealth. And that's, that's what it was all centered around. As I looked back on it, it was, I, want, I wanted this wealth. I saw wealth as a gauge of success. I saw being rich and having these things as a gauge of success in life. I mean, what, what does life under the sun have to offer except for that? A desire for more and more things, things to, to fill us with pleasure and joy. These are things apart from Christ. This is this is simple things that fill our hearts and, and it never is satisfying. So that's that's kind of where my hard attitude was. By the Lord's grace, today, instead of riches in in financial wealth. I've received uh, a, a life more fulfilling, a life with Christ, a life with my wife. We have a beautiful relationship. I have four kids that uh, fill me with more pleasure than, than I know what to do with. I, I'm overjoyed every day by them. Um, and and saying in that too, I was, I was crazy enough when I was 18 to actually get a tattoo on my back. It, had, it has a lion clawing up at, at what I perceived as everything. I wanted to attain everything. And, and comically... In Christ, in coming to the Lord and having him renew me, I've received everything. Uh, it's, it's fantastic as, it, as I was kind of reflecting through it. Just a little snippet to kind of kick us off as we look into Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 20. We are talking about wealth. Kohelet here is addressing wealth and what he sees in the governments around him Uh, what he sees happening. This is a descriptive part of the text here. We have from verses 8 all the way through 17. He is describing what he sees. And who better to describe this than Solomon himself? He was the king over Israel at the time. He saw these things happening. He had he had wealth in himself. We read that in the beginning that he, he filled himself with joy and pleasure and everything. He had gardens. He had slaves. He had, he had concubines. He had everything that one could imagine in life. Yet, he's living apart from God and he's not satisfied. Let's bow our heads together and pray one more time as we enter the text. Oh, Father, thank you for bringing us here today as a church. That we might come together, look at your text, look at your inspired word that's before us, and learn why you've put these things here. Let us to gr- help us to grow in greater relationship with you, Lord. And may the Spirit be among us today, unveiling our hearts to your truth and, and exposing uh, the weaknesses in our lives, the areas that need change, Lord. Help us to change those. Make that change in us today, Father. It's in your mighty name we pray, Lord Jesus. So Kohelet here is working through this wisdom literature. And Grant unfolded for us last week what it means to come prepared. What is proper worship? What does that look like? So just a, just a quick heart check as well. Like how did, we, how did we do that with that this week? Did we intentionally prepare for Sunday morning? Did we, did we do a little bit of pre-reading? Um, did, we, did we set some clothes aside in the morning so that we didn't have to wrestle with simple issues like what are we going to wear? Um, did we prepare a meal so that we were snacks for the kids so that we're not running around last minute? Were we intentional about coming here today Sunday? Did we prepare our hearts to know that we're standing before the Lord in the house of God? Um, if you didn't, that's... That's okay. I'm working through that too. That's something I've been working on for a long time. If you did, praise God. Write that in the prayer, uh, prayer items. Rejoice. Rejoice with the elders that you're here with your heart prepared today. Prepare our hearts. That's wise. That's what Solomon has told us to do. Today we're given wisdom as well in verses 8 through 20. Let's read this together. I'm going to read verses 8 and 9. We're going to take it in little chunks, and we're going to work through it. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for the land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields. So here, the author, Kohelet, is pointing out what he sees. This is descriptive of what's going on in the province. Like I said, he's witnessed this with his own eyes. He was king over Israel, and it's, it's likely that this could be happening in his own territories. He was king over many lands, that, and, and he had appointed rulers over those lands and then there's appointed rulers below him and then rulers below him they all have someone to answer to and you see that right there in the hierarchy they're looking to who's above them and they're trying to please who's above them every step of the way that's very very normal to what we see in our business ladders our business models it's what we see in our governance and our governments today there's municipal level then we have provincial level and we go all the way up to federal level and even even the federal level answers to somebody else a larger group this isn't strange to us. And he says too, don't be surprised. Do not be amazed at the matter. Talking about the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness. Don't be amazed at the matter. This happens. The poor are going to be used to work the land. This is what he sees happening. This is the model that's going on. A reason we shouldn't be amazed or surprised about this actually comes all the way, let's go back to 1 Samuel 8, and we'll look at 10 through 20. So turn with me there. It's a a decent chunk. Let's take the time and read that. So 1 Samuel 8, 10 through 20. 22. Sorry, we're going all the way. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord of, to the people who were asking for a king from him. So here we have the people of it, the Israelites pleading for a king. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, look at that, no with an exclamation point, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. No, no, they said to the Lord, no. We want to be like the people around us. This, this wasn't God's design for his people. But they cried out to him, they want a king. And we see that now here. like Fast forward hundreds of years and you have... Solomon here, king over Israel, and he's he's essentially pointing back to this. This is what's happening. There's oppression, and it will always happen. He, he, Samuel said it would happen. Those are the words of God through Samuel. We're supposed to be set apart from the world. This is what it means to be countercultural as a Christian. Um, our, our business doings should not look like that of this king. We should not be oppressing. We should not be going for for gain. And, and that's, that's kind of the, I forgot to even do the title of the sermon, but you guys read it up there. Uh, it's essentially, where's your heart? So these are hard attitudes that are being addressed here. And, and here we have a heart for gain, personal gain. Are we oppressing those below us? Are we taking advantage of them? Are we violating them so, so that we can gain? And then what? And then we have to answer it to someone else, and the gain gets passed on to them and to them and to them. It's meaningless at the end. It's vanity. It's havel. There is a violation of justice and rights. And Christians, we're not called to be like that. We are called to be working for the Lord in everything we do. We want to look different than the world. When we have a business dealing and an unbeliever has a business dealing, we don't want it to look the same. Let there be generosity and kindness and grace at the center of that business dealing. Show the love of Christ in those things. This is this is kingdom work. This is, Lord, your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This is the Lord's kingdom coming in heaven. And then he ends he ends that statement back to Ecclesiastes here. He ends that statement with, with a little bit of a confusing statement. Uh, I figured that out through looking through all the commentaries. There's a bit of bit of back and forth about what this last. Verse 9 means, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Uh, the, the, the two camps here are sort of that, it's good, it's positive. The king is pouring into his province. Though there's oppression and un- unrighteousness, his, his province is flourishing. There were different provinces under Solomon's reign. Some were for war machines, some were for cultivating fields, some were for trade routes, Uh, When a province's fields are are flourishing, this is good. The other camp here is that it's to the personal gain of the king. It's a negative connotation here. A king committed to cultivated fields. A king committed to driving the wagon hard so that he has gain. So that he looks good to his next official. Who then boasts about what he did and, and he looks good to his next official. And so the ladder climbs all the way until it comes to King Solomon. Those are the two camps. Doesn't necessarily matter. What we see here is there, there is a heart that's looking to financial wealth for gain, and it comes at the oppression of the, of the people below. So carrying on, once there's gain, surely there is greed. Here we see the next heart attitude that's being addressed here as we, as we climb this, this chiasm. Here is a heart for Greed. So let's look at verses 10 through 17. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. We'll pause right there. We'll we'll carry another chunk after. If we can go to the next slide, Uh, I I think I have a picture in there. So, tough to see. I'm I'm not great with the electronics, but I thought I'd I'd try an image here to help us understand. This, you guys have your ES, a lot of people have ESV Bibles in front of you. This is where, jump into another text, we have the NIV. So, if we look here at the NIV, you see the first paragraph up there is verses 8 and 9. And then it actually breaks into some poetic language. You see, it looks more like a psalm or a proverb as it's broken into. We don't get that in our ESV text here. I think it's done almost a little bit of disservice in the sense that it's created a full paragraph of writing and it can all blend together. But you see in the NIV, you have a little more broken up into poetry and it, it helped me understand it as I read it a little bit different. So don't, kids, don't be afraid to grab another translation of the Bible, it's good to use that as a comparison. I'll often do that when I'm looking into the text. Start with, the, start with what you're comfortable with, generally the ESV. Go to the NIV is a good one, the NASB. Uh, I've even, even gone all the way to the NLT. What you have is a difference of word-for-word translation, uh, one being the Titus would be the King James, and then to the NLT, which is more a thought-to-thought type of translation. And you have everywhere in between. There's tons of good resources for that. Digital, if you go digital copy, you can simply click a button and you get a different translation. It's okay to look at those. Um. All right. So as we carry on, we see the poetic language. And we have, again, carrying through in this descriptive portion in verse 10. So take a look, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who, who loves wealth with his income. And the author says, this also is vanity. This, isn't that true? We're never satisfied with what we have. This is, this is the havel of it. This is the vanity of it, the vapor. It's, it's always one thing with money that leads to the next. It leads to the next. You need more of it. Your lifestyle increases. You need more of it. All of a sudden, you need a second job to supplement it, and you're away from your home. The love of money and wealth and the lover of money and wealth is always going to want more. And again, here we see, when goods increase... They increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? He presents a little question there. Almost, almost rhetoric. As wealth and riches increase and they don't satisfy, you have a picture here that you need more help. You need more help to manage this. More people are going to come around you. Even if you don't need the help, uh, the wealthy are going to have people who come around them and they want part of this. This is what's being described here. You have money and wealth and then people who come in and they want to eat of it. They want to partake in it. They want their piece of it. And and the person who has the wealth and the riches no longer has the ability even to, to partake in them. Before he knows it, there's this machine happening before him where people are working People are doing these things. He can't can't even partake in what he used to enjoy. He can't have any of it. That's what it means by he sees them with his eyes. They increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes. He's standing at a distance. And then he goes to a contrast. Verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. You see that contrast? We have a description of sweet is the sleep of a laborer. This is honest work. The laborer is, is the, the low person, the, the poor, the oppressed that we had in the beginning. Whether they eat little or much. When, you, when you're at the bottom, generally you're thankful for what you have. Whether it's a little bit or whether it's much. There tends to be a lot more thankfulness in your heart. As your, as your goods increase, as your richness, your wealth increases, that's what he's describing by the full stomach, a, a greedy rich man, it, it won't let him sleep. As this machine transpires before you, as there's more and more responsibility upon you, as you're climbing this business ladder, ladder, this model to the next level, there's people under you. And, and here he describes them as left sleepless. And we've seen that before. We'll see it again actually later on. He talks about vexation. We talked about vexation back in chapter 3. Their heart is troubled. Their minds are troubled. They have responsibilities beyond what they can handle. Their span of control becomes too much for them. You end up with sleepless nights, but sweet is the sleep of the laborer in honest work, whether they eat little or much. Looking at 13, this is all very straightforward text here. This is descriptive. Here he goes into our, in our poetic time again. He has two times. He says here, there is a grievous evil. So take a look at this. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. So he brings back this theme of under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. This is our greedy rich man right here. Riches are kept to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Then he goes again, This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, All his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. He describes these two grievous evils. He's he's painting for us a picture, and, and Solomon may have witnessed this himself happening. He may have seen this as perhaps a family member close to him that this happened to. What we do know is that we have a description of a lifestyle here, a greedy heart. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And then those riches were lost in a bad venture. It doesn't describe what the bad venture is here. But if if anyone's taken a look around the world and just kept your phone on for a little while, I mean, aren't we receiving opportunities to make bad ventures everywhere? We have uh, people trying to call us, telling us that they're CRA to pay this amount of money. We have investments. The stock market itself right now is is going down, 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 and who knows where it ends. What you thought could be a good venture can turn out to be a bad venture. We don't know. The point here is that this man, with his greediness and his wealth, lost all his money in, in a venture, and he's the father of a son, and now he has nothing in his hand. The idea here is he has no inheritance to pass on. He's been irresponsible with his money, and he now has no inheritance to pass on. Uh, one commentator said that perhaps to the son here, it was looking forward to the inheritance, that he, he may have been a lazy son, and this is what he needed to live. Uh, we, don't, we don't know that here. But as he came from his mother's room, he shall go again naked, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. There was a, uh, in a commentary as well as I was reading, the rabbis of the time had a saying, and, and it's exactly this. I, I saw this actually back in chapter three again as well. Those, the saying goes, a baby comes into the world with clenched fists in order to grab all that it can. But a person leaves this world with open palms, not able to carry anything out of this world. So here it is, as, as you come from your mother's womb naked, so shall you go as well to the grave naked. We're not taking any of this with us. And what does Jesus teach about wealth in Matthew sixteen twenty six? As As a greedy man is clinging to his wealth and his life is wrapped up in this, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? This is in Matthew sixteen twenty six? For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So Kohelet goes on to ex- expand this and say that he, the result of this imagery is that he's lost everything. Everything he poured his life into, everything he thought that mattered, he, he's left with nothing at the end of it. He's ne- left with nothing in his death. So what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? We've seen this before. It's like trying to herd the wind. What gain is there? You cannot do that. You cannot sway the wind. You can't move it. This is the Havel, the vanity. You, you can't take hold of it. It's, it's a mist. It's a vapor. This controlling life is not us. And then it goes very dark here. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. The darkness described here is a loneliness. Uh, some commentators say too that it's, it's literally sitting in the dark. The man couldn't even afford to have candlelight for his dinner. He is sitting in darkness. He's alone alone. Vexation, his mind is bothered. He has no peace in his mind. He can't sleep. Sickness, anger. And this is, this is an awful state of being for this man. This is how the greedy heart that is out for personal gain is left. This is how you could end up So this chiasm has taken a, a step, step, step. It's, you can t- call them steps up if you want, or, or in this case it seems like it's steps uh, lower, lower, lower as we get to the main point of the text here. Here we're going to plateau for a little while in verses 18 through 20 uh, where we see the, the main point of these steps bringing us to, to where we are here in 18 and 20. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So this is that refrain once again that we've been talking about: the to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment. This this refrain echoes again and again through this book. I think it's the third time we've seen this now, as a chorus to a song, and and it it has a it has a, a physical appeal to it: to eat, to drink. But, but what it's describing is satisfaction. When one has the food they need, when one has the drink they need, and there's enjoyment, those, those three things in life are, are very satisfying. It describes someone who has what they need. Their supplications are met. Behold, says the author. He starts us with a very strong statement. And we turn from the negative that we've been building down towards to a positive. What I have seen to be good and fitting. This is a statement from Kohelet, the author. This is what he has seen to be good and fitting. Previously, we would have seen perceived. This is what he perceived. So be satisfied Because this is our lot. He says here too, this is our lot. Our appointed portion that we are blessed to receive. And look at the text, God has given this to us. Right at the end of verse 18, God is the one who enables us to have this satisfaction God has given it to us. God has given us our lot. God has given us our portion. This is God's providence over our lives. He's appointed us to certain areas. He's given some of us a little bit, and he's given some of us more. And we're to enjoy what we have. We're to eat and be satisfied in what God has given us. So kids, who is the giver of the wealth and possessions in the verse here anybody shout it out God that's right God is a giver of the wealth and possessions it says it right there verse 19 everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them kids who gives us the power to enjoy these things God that's right it is God who has given us these things Parents, you can can chime in too. Adults, you can chime in too. This is is real. It's right here in the text. God has given us these things. These are gifts. Church, all together, who's given us the ability to accept our lot and our portion in life? God. That's right. God has given this to us. Who gives us the power to rejoice in all things? God, that's right. These are gifts from God. We've seen this before. It is back, in, back in chapter 3, we're going to see it again. This satisfaction, this fulfillment, these things that we can enjoy, they are from God. Repentance, faith, from God. It's by His grace that we receive these things. It is all through Him. It is all from Him, it is, and, and it is through his son, Jesus. This is the prescriptive part of the text. This is where our heart's attitude ought to be. Not stuck on our wealth and our finances and, and, and angry and vexed about these things. Not clinging to these things that God has given us. Let's, let's, not, let's be real with it. God has given us these things. This is getting back to life under the, the S-O-N. Life under the sun that we've been hammering away at. Not life under the S-U-N. This is life with God. This is not life apart from God. Being thankful for what we have. And as a New Testament believer, being thankful for his son, Jesus, who we've seen. The author didn't, didn't know the canon yet. He didn't have all of this. They had the simple joy of, of what they've received as our lot and their portion. We now have all of this and we can add to it. We have the blessings of his son, Jesus. And then verse 20, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So if you're, if you're to reflect upon your heart attitude over, over years, I think this is very true, and we recognize this. When we are, when we are satisfied, when we have joy in our heart, when, when we're resting in the Lord and we're really laying it as, at His feet, we're, we're not living with a regret uh, of things past. We're not living with what does the future look like, where our, our hearts aren't troubled with what's to come there's a reality of truly resting and knowing that we under we are under his divine providence this is rest for our hearts this is a way that our lives are filled with joy and joy complete we're not looking back to the past we're not thinking how it could have been how it could have been better we're satisfied Our hearts aren't longing. We're not seeking for that satisfaction where we ought not be seeking that satisfaction. We're resting and seeking it where it truly needs to be. So again, as New Testament believers, we do have so much more. The joy in our hearts comes from the redemption through the blood of Jesus, the the spotless lamb on the cross. That's where our joy and satisfaction comes. So I, I wanted, I'm going to end a little bit with a diagram, and then I'm going to kind of expound a little bit on what Grant said last week when we talk about a, a gospel presentation. And, and the, the gospel presentation really in, encompasses, uh, and Grant said this, God, four things, God, man, Christ, and our response. So I'm just going to reflect quickly back on the text, uh, and then if you want to, if you want to go to the next slide, we can bring up that image for the for everybody. This is what's called a uh, it was a napkin gospel diagram. So it's a real quick presentation because this is great if you're you're having coffee with someone and you have to give the gospel and like you got their attention for three minutes. Uh, three three circles, three lines. First one is God's design. This is where we've fallen from. This is, this is Genesis chapters 1, 2, 3. God's original design for his people. And that's even God's design for, for how we were to be as people. We have fallen from that because of sin. And what that does is that leads to brokenness. Um, coming out of brokenness. And brokenness has the messy lines. That's, that's a messy life of brokenness. Coming to the gospel, we have repent and believe. And this is repent and believe in Christ as our Savior. And here you have the gospel presentation of man, Christ, God, and our response. And through that gospel, we come back to God's original design through a recovery and a pursuing of that relationship with God, the rebuilding of a broken relationship from sin. Uh, like this is your napkin gospel presentation in a nutshell this is this is reality so looking back quickly to the text we're going to wrap up here we'll start with man in our text today what was the hard attitude of man we have oppression of the poor violation of justice and righteousness we see idolatry towards money vexation darkness and anger emptiness, loneliness, and sadness. This is, this is man. This is the depravity of man right here. This is brokenness. In the God column, we see him empowering us to accept our lot. God has given us all things. We accept our lot. We have the ability from God to enjoy life. And we see him fulfilling and satisfying us. God is our satisfaction. We see him as the gift giver. He is the great gift giver. It's not the gift we ought to be desiring, but the gift giver himself. And we see him to be good. These things are good. It reminds me of Psalm 34 8. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste him, see him, feel his goodness. And then we have wrapped up into kind of two columns here. We have Christ and our response. At the very end, chapter, or very end, verse 20, we have joy, satisfaction, and joy. This is a response to what God has done. And it's made complete in the atonement and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's in him. Brothers and sisters, believers, today is a day of communion, a day that we remember the blood that was spilled and his body that was broken for us. This is a day that we remember the cross and what he did to atone for our sins. And we do this by partaking in in communion together in the elements. Uh, So Grant is going to be up here, an elder, to present the elements to us. and, And take this time to reflect on your faith in Christ. If your faith is lacking, pray for more. He is gracious to give and to supplicate that. He will give you more. If your faith is full today and you're rejoicing in him, rejoice in him. Be happy. Be glad. Call out to prayer in him. Love him. Take this time to repent of sin that is standing between you and our living God before you come to his table. Make things right. Because Christ is the redeemer of our souls. I'm going to pray for us as we go into communion. Just prepare our hearts. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing these truths to us today that is in your word. By using Solomon in his broken state as a vessel to bring forth your inerrant word, God. To give us a picture of what life looked like then and also what it looks like now. It's no different. But God, we want it to be changed. We want to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, Father. Help us this day as we turn to Christ renewed and refreshed by his goodness and this gift that you've given us in the Son. Father, prepare our hearts as we come to your table. We worship you, Father. I pray this in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen.